Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Vivian Berkovich is a former Canadian ambassador to Israel 2014-16. to 16. Uh, the ambassador writes regular op-ed pieces on Israel, now of course with the war with Hamas. One was mother of Canadian murdered by Hamas, given cold shoulder by Trudeau government. Another one was Israel braces for what may come next. Ambassador Berkovich, thank you for coming on. You know what I did? I was, I, I was, I was going with the Italian pronunciation of your name. I blew it. I'm sorry. I apologize. <laughs> I you should, know, I, uh, you're not the first one to do that. Yeah, I should don't, do don't better, though. It. It's my job. I need to do yeah. this. Yeah, it's my job. <laughs> well, you know, it's a Romanian name. I won't, I won't uh, you know, not many people know it. Well, thank you for coming on. You're the founder as well Pleasure. of State of Tel Aviv at Substack.com, independent digital yeah. platform covering Israel and the Middle East. Um, Correct. Let's talk about... Uh, Canadian-Israeli family ravaged by Hamas and the murder mm. and ignored by the Canadian government. Let's start with that column of yours. Share the story, please. Sure. Um, there's a woman, uh, her name is Jackie Rivers-Vital, grew up uh, in and went to university in Ottawa and then moved to Israel kind of by accident, um, I guess about 40 years ago, married, had four children, her children are now grown up and having children of their own. Um, when this attack began on Saturday, October 7th, uh, she was visiting with her family in Ottawa. It's a big, this time of year is, are a lot of Jewish holidays, and so a lot of people went to Israel to visit. A lot of people came here to visit. And she saw that there had been red alerts um, along the border where two of her children lived, the border with the Gaza Strip, and thought, well, that's kind of weird. And then the next thing she knew, she was sort of thrown headlong into this nightmare that for her will never end. Um, one of her daughters, whose name is was Adi Vital Kaplun, um, she had two young children, six months and just under three years, uh, and a husband. And on the morning of Saturday, October 7th, her husband uh, went out for a, a sunrise picnic with a bunch of friends. It was a monthly little treat they had. Israeli thing to do. Um, and uh, Adi was at home with the babies, little kids, and her father was visiting and staying in a kind of rundown uh, guest house across the, the way. And um, Jackie was in Canada and Ottawa trying to figure out what was going on. And in the end, um, the two boys likely watched their mother be murdered by Hamas. Uh, terrorists. They broke into the family safe room where she was taking care of her babies. Um, all we know is that her body was found days later booby-trapped. The whole room was booby-trapped. The boys were taken out by these masked terrorists and forced to stage propaganda films um, which exist uh, and in which they just seen their mother murdered and they were forced to say, the older one was forced to say an Islamic prayer before he was given a glass of water. Um, they were then taken um, with these Hamas terrorists a few doors down to another house. Um, they shot it up with the boys right there. 
and uh, a woman and her friend were hiding in a closet in their safe room. The male friend was protecting her. He, of course, was murdered. And they told her, take the baby, let's go. And they started force marching them to Gaza. At the Gaza border, they staged a second propaganda film, which shows uh, this woman, Avital, who was a friend of Adiz, the mother who is now dead, showed her being reunited with her sons. And it was a very heartwarming staged propaganda film, um, which, of course, was all a lie because they were not her sons. Um, I forgot to mention that the older boy, the almost four-year-old boy, uh, was shot in the foot and couldn't walk. And the bizarre thing is, like, Jackie was sitting in Ottawa and getting, like, really weird bits and pieces, and she sees this picture, photo of her son at the Gaza border alone, and she's like, what the heck? Um, She put all of these pieces together, of course, um, you know, after the fact. And I guess because the this Avital had been useful to Hamas with these two children, they just told her, like, go back. I mean, it's one of the most bizarre stories of the whole war. So, you know, she has this four-year-old who can't walk, and she puts a baby in a sling. Um, and it's, it's like crazy chaos, rampaging terrorists everywhere. And she said, I don't know why they didn't shoot at us. But she walked back to the kibbutz, and they're safe. So now the two young boys have been reunited with their father. Um, and thank goodness they're all safe. Um, and three days later, Jackie was found, as I said, murdered. So, you know, there are a lot of obvious, obvious points in there that we can't fill in, but that's the basic story. Hmm. In the meantime, though, Jackie was in Ottawa, and immediately, 2 o'clock Eastern time on Saturday, October 7th, as soon as she learned that her daughter... And the boys were nowhere to be seen because they had not yet located the boys. As soon as she learned that, she phoned um, the SOS line at Foreign Affairs, Global Affairs, and said, uh, I think my daughter and grandsons may have been taken by Hamas because we knew at this point that they were doing that. They were taking ho- civilian hostages. And the person on the line said, well, what makes you think that? <laughs> Or we're oh, my God. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, at this point, this is two in the afternoon on Saturday, October 7th. Mm-hmm. Look, I'm a civilian. I don't have access to the resources of 10,000 plus in the Department of Foreign Affairs. But I knew why someone would think that. So I would assume that people who are manning the desk, particularly in such an extreme situation, would have basic information. Um, and she explained why she thought that may be possible. And they're like okay, leave your number, someone will get back to you. You know, like you're ordering a pizza. (laughs) And uh, that took a few hours. And a few hours later, she received a phone call from uh, somebody at the RCMP. And it's early evening. And um, they said, well, we'll come by later or tomorrow at some point. And she said, um, well, you know, you can come by any time because, like, you know, I'm not exactly going to get a good night's sleep here. And, you know, her thinking was also, if you want to start working on this, uh, might as well come now because, or soon, because um, then you can work on it and you'll have something to pass off in the morning, you know, because of the time difference, right? 
we can take advantage of that. And there clearly was no sense of urgency felt anywhere in Ottawa. Um, and the RCMP uh, folks did show up, however, the next morning at 8.30, uh, where Jackie was staying, and she cannot praise them enough. Like, once they were there, they were just incredible, supportive, helpful. They attended to the big stuff, the small stuff. Couldn't say enough good things about them. But on the other hand, though, we have the enormous machinery of Ottawa and the system. And um, I'm going to assume that the Prime Minister and the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Minister of Public Security, and pretty much everyone else that matters, um, were all aware on Saturday, shortly after 2 p.m., that a Canadian and her non-Canadian son may be hostage of Hamas. And not a single... Uh, neither a senior political, uh, you know, at MP or a senior public servant uh, bothered to call her, make personal contact. I mean, you know, and it wasn't until Wednesday afternoon, which was a full 24 hours after Jackie knew and after Ottawa knew that her daughter had been murdered, a Canadian citizen murdered at the hands of Hamas. Um, it was only then that Melanie Jolie seemed to have found a few minutes to make a call and inform her that there might be a plane leaving at some point from Ottawa. She wasn't sure where it was going. She thought Athens. And if Jackie wanted, she could maybe get on that plane, but she'd have to kind of arrange her onward travel by herself. And, I mean, I think that that conduct doesn't really require any uh, editorializing, I think it speaks for itself. And I just want to add that it's incredible because when you look at the efforts made by, you know, President Biden, um, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, um, what's it, Macron, French President Emmanuel yeah, Macron, yeah. all all of the Western European leaders to personally contact um, the hostage families themselves. Um, I mean, the president of the United States has spent hours, so has Lincoln, speaking to them, meeting with them. And I mean, the prime minister of Canada, you know, just couldn't even find a minute to do something just decent, decent. To me, it's mind boggling. It is. Um, it's, it's it's sad. It's embarrassing. It's it's unacceptable. I mean, I can find all sorts of words, but you know what I'm saying, and you're feeling, and I can yeah, hear yeah. it in your voice. I can, I mean, you were there, and you've lived in Tel Aviv, um, resident of Tel yeah. Aviv. Let me ask you this. Yeah. So now we have anti-Semitism has risen to the point that the brutality of Hamas on October the seventh is overlooked, right. Ambassador. It's accepted. It's cheered. Would you speak mm -hmm. to that issue of international anti-Semitism and its virulent growth? And, I, you know, frankly, I think many Canadians were very surprised at the rush to support Hamas on the streets and in the universities. But what do you make of this? I'm not at all surprised. Um, anyone who knows me knows that I've been saying that uh, it's there. You just have to scratch the surface and it's going to come back in a really extreme and virulent way. And it's going to come when and where we least expect it. 
And the where is North America. Europe isn't such a surprise given what's been going on there for the last 20, 30 years. I think here people are more naive, more passive, and probably more surprised. Um, Listen, I am the daughter of a Holocaust survivor, a refugee who came to this country in the late 40s. And uh, I grew up hearing that you, we never had the luxury of even allowing ourselves to think that it can't happen again because it happened and it can happen again. It's interesting. And, Sorry. Um, no, I was going to say, so look, I mean, there are so many fantastic things about Canada. I love Canada. I spend much of my year here still. Like I'm in Tel Aviv, but I'm also here a lot. Like I'm really of both worlds. Um, and it's a fantastic country. There are also very, some very not fantastic aspects of Canada. And I think we see them kind of, you know, dominating at the moment. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that I was uh, appointed by Stephen Harper, Prime Minister Stephen Harper, as uh, ambassador to Israel. And from the moment, people didn't even know me. Like, it had just been announced. And both within and without the Department of Foreign Affairs, as it was then called, um, I was targeted, I was targeted immediately as uh, racist, Islamophobic, uh, disloyal, uh, you know, Jews can't be loyal to both country and, right? That's a classic anti-Semitic elders design trope. And I'll tell you that the two and a half years that I was inside the Department of Foreign Affairs, what I saw and what I heard said and done by senior public servants made my skin crawl. Not just in that department, it goes up higher even. But what I saw and experienced I think would make any decent person's skin crawl. But you see, disliking, hating Israel, AKA Jews, is totally acceptable in many parts of society, in Canada, and in one part, it's Ottawa. You know, it just is. And that's a fact. And, uh, you know, there's, I'd be willing, I could give you some names and, call them up and see if they'd uh, come out and speak publicly and own their um, disgusting views publicly and have a discussion about it rather than calling various media outlets and making untrue allegations uh, falsely and anonymously. Yeah. Ambassador, but the time... there's a culture that supports that, you know, and that's Canada. That's yeah. a big part of Canada. Time goes by so quickly when, uh, when I want to hear what you have to say and We've come to the end of our time for today, unfortunately, but I hope you'll come back. Right. I have many more questions to ask you, but I thank you for taking the time today, and we can hear the emotion in your voice so clearly. Well, thank you. This text already came in from John in Alberta. Hi, Roy. In all the protests against Israel, why hasn't the news media asked these protesters, do they actually know that Hamas attacked and murdered children and older people? Yeah, ask them. Ask them. Put them on the spot. Yaakov Katz. Mr. Katz is the uh, former editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, also served as the Jerusalem Post's military reporter and defense analyst for a decade. He's the author of Shadow Strike, Inside Israel's Secret Mission to Eliminate Syrian Nuclear Power, and co-author of Israel versus Iran, The Shadow War. Mr. Katz, thanks for joining us. How are you? Good. Thank you, Roy. I'm asking you this because I looked at your posts on X or Twitter this morning, 
The first one I saw was of a father speaking about the last call from his daughter. Dad, they're shooting at me. I'm dying. This was a young lady who was at that concert. If I, I just want to ask you this. Could you speak to me about your feelings about October the 7th today? And how would you, if you were still the editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post, deal with the grief, the anger, and the responsibility as a journalist? I mean, listen, what happened on October 7th strikes at the core of what it means to be a Jew living in the state of Israel. Because what, what, what they tried to do, what Hamas tried to do, when invading our country and breaking into our homes and murdering 1,400 of our people, was an attempt to annihilate the Jewish people and an attempt to put an end to the Jewish presence in our ancestral homeland. That, that was the purpose of what they tried to do, and they did it in the most brutal, barbaric way known to mankind, cutting off limbs of children in front of their parents, cutting open pregnant women and dropping out the fetus, raping women, murdering Holocaust survivors, kidnapping 229 citizens, children at the age of nine months, two years old, four years old, 30 kids under the age of 16 being held in Gaza. So what this does to everybody is it strikes at the core of what it means to be here. And we all feel the pain because of being a small country, we know, I, I, I speak for myself, but I, I think I speak for everyone. Everyone knows someone who was killed. Everyone knows someone who was taken hostage. Everyone knows what this feeling is like. Everyone has family members who are now serving in the IDF. I have family members who are serving children, siblings, nephews, serving on the front lines. So, so what, what this means for any Israeli is that this is a feeling of, of, of immense anxiety, but war and concern about what's going to be with the future of our country. So Iran, the terrorist government, builds and supplies a terrorist army as you described them both, and I fully concur for whatever that's worth, and thereby places the citizens of Gaza at risk, Hamas does, when the IDF responds. And yet internationally, demonstrations are evident with the demonstrators supporting Hamas as freedom fighters. That makes that text I received from my Alberta listener really relevant. How do you reconcile the demonstrators based on what you just described to us, standing there by in the thousands chanting their support for Hamas? First of all, it's very concerning. And, you know, I live here in Israel, so I, I'm dealing with the concern of the battle with the terrorists. But I think that anyone who lives in the Western world today, whether it's in Canada, whether it's in the U.S., whether it's in London, Sydney, Australia, or Paris, wherever these protests are taking place, what we're seeing with these Hamas supporters and sympathizers is unfortunately, and, and I hate to say it, but I think it's true, they start with us, but then they move on to other places. This is what happened in the, 20 years ago in the beginning of the Second Intifada, when Hamas suicide bombers were blowing up on our buses and our coffee shops and our restaurants. And we said to the world, you might come, you know, because the world was coming out against us, saying, no, it's because of these so-called Israeli occupation. Just give the Palestinians a state and everything will be okay. And we said to the world, that's not what this is. This is a battle between the, the forces of good against the forces of evil. And if you stand on the wrong side of this battle, they are going to come after you. And we remember 9-11. And we remember the bombings in Madrid. I remember the bombings in London. I remember the attacks in Paris. They take place all over the world. So when I see 
tens of thousands of people marching on the streets of London, yet chanting jihad, a holy war against the Jewish people. When I see people on the streets of New York and elsewhere ripping down pictures of hostages that were taken by Hamas, and I see those rallies that are taking place, and I say to myself, first of all, these people are lock, lack any moral integrity are willing to stand with the terrorist organization that brutalizes people, innocent civilians. Put that aside for a moment, but I think that you have to be concerned, Roy, that they're coming after you next. Yeah, dominoes. But, so now we also see the, the bombing by the IDF of Gaza and the civilian casualties. And those pictures and videos are very disturbing. What do you say to that? How should people how should people see what they're seeing? Look, the pictures from Gaza and there's destruction in Gaza is deeply disturbing and it's unfortunate. And I wish it didn't have to happen. And I think every Israeli wishes it wouldn't have had to happen. No Israeli wanted this war. But when 2,500 members of Hamas terrorists crossed into our country on October 7th and broke into our homes and killed our people and massacred in ways that are still, the testimonies are still, and the video footage is unimaginable, shocks you to your core. When they did that, so Israel shouldn't, shouldn't be able to defend itself? So people will say, but there are civilians. Of course we care for the civilians, but we also care about our civilians. And our civilians cannot be allowed to be murdered in that way. Unfortunately, what Hamas does by embedding itself in civilian infrastructure, by, by uh, hiding its, its operatives and its command posts under hospitals, schools, and mosques, and in apartment buildings, what it is doing is it is turning civilian infrastructure into military infrastructure. And Israel, like any country would, is defending itself and doing what it needs to do. It is trying its best to minimize civilian casualties. And when those do happen, there's only one side to blame in this conflict, and that is Hamas, for using these people. This is why, Roy, everyone thought Israel was going to invade right away Gaza. Israel waited three weeks to go into Gaza. Why? Because it wanted to try to move as many people from northern Gaza to southern Gaza. And it wanted to get a humanitarian effort underway in the south so the people from the north to move to the south would get their needs their needs met. Did anyone, did, did Hamas call up the, the kibbutzim, the communities along the border and say, hey, we're going to invade you? Why don't you guys leave the border before, before they came into our homes? No, they didn't do that. So the, anyone who tries to create a moral equivalency between Israel and Hamas is, again, lacking any moral integrity and completely misunderstands what's happening here. This is a simple battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And if we don't stand on the right side in this historical conflict, it'll be a stain on us for the rest of our lives. You know, I've tried to make the argument with people face-to-face that Hamas is really just an extension, for our purposes, of ISIS. So if you're standing with Hamas, you're basically standing with ISIS. And I get a lot of pushback for that. Oh, no, no, that's not it. And, and again, it takes me back to what our listener in Alberta texted. Ask them, are they aware? Are they truly aware? Or are they simply being influenced, in many cases, by university professors and um, 
Well, we know that story. I want to ask you about that as well. But really, Hamas is an extension, again, and for general purposes, they're an extension of ISIS, are they not? Or are they worse? First of all, what we saw happen on October 7th seems to some extent even be worse than what we've known ISIS to do. We've seen terrible images from ISIS mm -hmm. of the way they treat women, the way they treat children, the way they would put people in cages and set those cages on fire. Yeah. But what we saw on, September, on October 7th were, 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 were things and acts that were even worse than that, to burn children, to burn babies, to decapitate children. These are, these are images that we, no one should ever have to see. But I think that, that, that what we have to keep in mind is that it's not about whether they're worse than ISIS or they're, or they're better than ISIS. What this is about is how the world, when there was ISIS and America and Western Europe went to battle it and destroyed Mosul and Iraq and went into parts of Syria. Why is there a double standard? Why then was it okay to destroy those cities? Why then was it okay for the, the coalition forces to kill m thousands more civilians than what Israel, unfortunately, has had to kill in Gaza? Why is it okay then? But when it comes to the Jewish people, we can't defend ourselves. No one, I didn't hear anyone say to America, don't attack Mosul. But when it comes to Israel, everyone's telling us not to attack Gaza. Why is there a double standard? And that's the question people really need to be asked. And I think that sadly, Roy, what you'll find is that this is a classic form of anti-Semitism. People don't want the Jewish people to be able to defend themselves. We have uh, a significantly growing issue, problem uh, in this country. I, can't, I shouldn't say problem. It's well beyond a problem of uh, anti-Semitism um, uh, really growing where Jewish Canadians are, are reluctant sometimes to send their kids to school where a restaurant in Toronto, a Jewish restaurant, was basically besieged. And, uh, and I remember in, after the 2015, again, back to ISIS attack on France and Paris, speaking with a government official in, uh, in Paris, French official, who was very disturbed that um, many members of the Jewish community of France, and he said the Jewish community has been central to our existence for hundreds of years, are saying we can't live here anymore because it's not safe. We're going to Israel. I, I hope that doesn't happen here, but it's incumbent on us as Canadians to defend the Jewish Canadians, the Jewish members of our community, and stand with them and not allow, allow them to become pushed around and intimidated and, and victimized. And that's our job. So that's more of an editorial comment than a question. No, but I agree. That's the job today of every country. I mean, you look at the statistics and you see the stark, sharp rise in anti-Semitism across the world today. People who have no problem coming out and cursing Jews and shoot, shouting at Jews and beating Jews and besieging Jews. It's as if Jew, Jewish blood is not worth anything in today's world. And that is something that the entire world needs to come out and say, enough is enough. This isn't the way it can be. And this is unacceptable. And that's for the government in Ottawa and the government in D.C. and the government in London. All countries in the world that stand for freedom have to stand together against Hamas. Yeah, our prime minister wasn't as quick as he should have been. Um, you're also somebody who's 
challenging of your own government in Israel. You're challenging Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, and you posted about his behavior leading into uh, the, the current war. And your, your final sentence was, this is not the way a country goes to war. Explain that to us, please. Prime Minister Netanyahu was pushing, as we all know, the judicial overhaul before all this went down and led the country to an unprecedented state of division and strife. And that's how this war caught us. And today, thankfully, the Israeli people have come together and are fighting side by side. And the civilian effort to assist the troops is incredible as well. But what we have to keep in mind is that the country has to remain together. And unfortunately, we're seeing fights within the government placing blame on officers of the IDF and members of the security services, claiming that they're the ones who are to blame and are responsible for the failures that led to the tragic events and the attacks on October 7th. But this is a colossal failure of government policy as well. And Netanyahu has failed until now to take responsibility. He has been the prime minister for 15 years, except for one year. This, was, this happened in his watch. And he who, who, who tried all these years to say, my number one legacy will be, I protected Israel. Well, he failed. And that requires a taking of responsibility. And when you can't do that, then there is a flaw in your character, I fear. And that is something that we also need to be cognizant of, because we're entering into a battle that could last months, if not longer. And we have to be strong and resilient. But the way to do that in democracy is also to have checks and balances, and also to hold our leaders accountable. And we can do that here in Israel. Again, that is what distinguishes us from the bad people, from the, the, the side of Hamas. That is what makes us a powerful country. And that is one of our strengths. And that is how we have trust in our leaders. So when we can look them in the eye and understand that what they're doing might be right or might be wrong, that is part of the way that we can fight. And we have to do that. I'm sorry, I literally have only 30 seconds left. Uh, how concerned about are you about a second front in the north of Israel with Hezbollah coming down from the south, from Lebanon? Look, it's very concerning, Roy. The, the, the Hezbollah has many more rockets, many more fighters, greater capabilities. And Iran is behind all of this. And Iran wants this chaos and anarchy because they want to be able to continue with their nuclear program. Mm -hmm. They want to see Israel destroyed and weakened. And, and, and this is a concern that, that that front in the north could also blow up. Okay. Israel has to be prepared for war on multiple fronts today. This is why this is a real battle. I don't want to say it's yet an existential battle, mm -hmm. but this could quickly turn into a battle that will really, the likes of which we have never seen before in the okay. state of Israel. Mr. Katz, I do appreciate so much your coming on the program. I hope you don't mind if we ask you back. Of course. Thank you, Roy. Well, it was a, it's a difficult time for uh, all the fans of Friends. There are millions and millions and millions. Because last night, Matthew Perry, of course, died. People are aware of this now, becoming more and more aware. A shock around the world. Uh, this morning on Toronto This Weekend on AM640, our global radio station in Toronto, Steve Bacon, who's uh, the host of TVO's flagship current affairs program, The Agenda, with Steve Hicken, spoke with his brother Jeff about uh, Matthew Perry. And Jeff knew Matthew Perry very well. Have a listen. You are probably waking up this morning to the news that Matthew Perry, one of the stars of Friends, uh, one of Canada's own. Yes, we consider him one of ours because even though he was born in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, he moved to Ottawa as a little kid, 
went to school with Justin Trudeau. They were a couple of years apart in school. Um, his mother, Matthew Perry's mother, was the press secretary to the current prime minister's father when he was the prime minister. That's right. Suzanne Perry was Pierre Trudeau's press secretary. In any event, Matthew Perry's life ended yesterday at the age of 54, far too young. Much love being expressed for the man uh, on social media today, uh, all over the place. Statements coming out about one of our favorite friends, a man we didn't know, but we thought we knew because we saw him on television for 10 years of Friends, and then, of course, for other television series and movies after that. Well, strangely enough, it occurred to me yesterday that I know somebody who was friends with Matthew Perry because they hung out together in California about 30 years ago, played hockey together, I think, and that guy is my brother. My brother, my baby brother, Jeff Pakin, uh, is going to join us now. Are you with us? Can you hear me? I can hear you, yes. Can you hear me? I got you just fine. Now, you know, this is going back three decades, so you're going to have to refresh my memory on some of this. I do remember when you... And your wife, Andrea, moved out to Los Angeles. I guess she went to UCLA. When, when was that? When did you move to California? We moved September of 1991. 91. So, and he went on the air with friends just shortly thereafter. So he, was he, how did you get to know him? So I, the last thing I threw on the moving truck was my hockey equipment. And you mentioned we played hockey together. That's how we connected. Uh, I went to the only hockey-based retail store I could find in the San Fernando Valley and told the owner I just moved from uh, the Toronto area, and I was a lousy B-level men's beer league hockey player. B-level? B what are you, That's generous. I would say C-level, maybe D, but keep going. You have to remember where you are. In Los Angeles, <laughs> I was B-level. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, he handed me a phone number and said to call this guy. I called the guy, and he said, well, come on out for a tryout. I'd never heard of a tryout before in beer league hockey. It was you know, $300 in a pulse and you get a jersey. Right. So I went to the tryout and they had a, a fella in a sweatsuit with cones and whistles. <laughs> We're skating in and out of, like it was 12 years old again and, and I was almost 30. And at the end of the practice, I said to the fellow who I had been connected to, like, what's with the guy in the tracksuit? Who's running a beer league? By the way, I made the team. So we were now fast friends. And he said, uh, oh, he's the, the Hollywood hockey guy. And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, he's the guy who makes hockey scenes in movies look legitimate for people who actually know what hockey looks like because half the audience doesn't. Uh -huh. Back in 1991. And so I thought, well, that's weird. Like, how'd you get him? And he kind of looked at me funny. He said, well, our whole team works in the industry. I said, oh, then how am I going on it? He said, well, you just tried out and you made it. So <laughs> I, sh I showed up to the dressing room for the first game, uh, you know, brought my $300 and uh, looked around the room and, and sort of didn't recognize anybody and then honed in on Kiefer Sutherland. I thought, well, I know him and I know he went to St. Andrews College. And uh, so at some point I will say hi to him. And there was a spot empty, and I took my equipment, dropped it, and I turned to the guy beside me, and he said, hey, I'm Jeff, and he said, I'm Matt. And literally, that's the, the moment that I met Matthew Perry, and he was not the Matthew Perry we all know now. Um, professionally, he was acting, but 
was probably best known as the boyfriend of Mallory on Family Ties by, by that point. Oh, for goodness sakes. And, oh, okay, so that's how you met him. Did you develop a friendship with him? Uh, you know, I, I don't like to oversell this because of who he became, but we were extremely good friends in the two years that I lived there. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of very neat connections that happen between us. Um, I'll, I'll start with something that happened midway through, uh, 1992, October, a lot of people will remember Dave Winfield down the line and we won a world series and I went to the DMV to order a personalized license plate, uh, state of California. And I asked for 92 J's, you know, people refer to the 69 Mets and the you know, whatever, that's how baseball teams who win are referred to. And they said, oh, you can't have it, it's taken. So I ordered Blue Jays instead. And six weeks later, my plate came in, I attached it to my car, I pulled into hockey that night, got out of my car, a blue Porsche pulls in beside me with the license plate 92 Jays, and it's Matthew. Oh, for goodness sakes. And I said, Perry, you bum, you stole my license. Like I <laughs> literally tried to get that. He said, I was waiting at 8.30 when the door opened. I ordered it so I could be first in line. It was, uh, And so we used to drive together to Anaheim from Los Angeles and whenever the Jays were in town and just go see the Jays. And, you know, he was sort of semi-recognizable to young people then because of the roles he had. Um, while we were together, he was signed up to, to start his own show called Home Free. And if you ever see that show, which very few people did, I think it lasted the six episodes they made, and that was that. Uh, I think it was a story about a, a guy who was, you know, uh, past his teenage years and living at home, hence the name Home Free. Hanging in the corner of his bedroom was his Rangers jersey from our team that we all played on together, and it was kind of a shout-out to the boys. So it was pretty cool. Isn't that neat? And, of course, I think more than once in episodes of Friends, he would have a Blue Jay cap in the background, either at his office or at his apartment or something like that. So we knew he, was, we knew he loved the Jays, right? He, know, he loved the Jays, and he became an instant Ottawa Senators friend, uh, fan and a recognizable one. Um, because he was from Ottawa, when the Senators came back, um, he, he was front and center on that one too, and used to you know play in in uh, scrimmages and stuff wearing early Senators jerseys, which was sort of not a in vogue thing to do back then. So very loyal to his roots of Canada and uh, specifically to the city of Ottawa. Jeff Pakin uh, was a friend of Matthew Perry's. And we are spending a considerable amount of time on our broadcast this morning remembering Matthew Perry, who died yesterday at age 54. And my baby brother, Jeff, played hockey with Matthew Perry when the two of them lived in California at the same time. This is about 30 years ago. And we're going to continue our conversation with my brother, who joins us now on the radio. Jeff, let me just say, uh, before uh, I get to you a question, we've got a couple of tweets that came in. Uh, these are from people who worked with him. Maggie Wheeler, who played Janice on Friends, who says, what a loss. The world will miss you, Matthew Perry. The joy you brought to so many in your too short lifetime will live on. I feel so very blessed by every creative moment we shared. And then Yvette Nicole Brown, who played Danny on The Odd Couple. You remember uh, Matthew did a reboot of The Odd Couple. And she said, our Odd Couple family suffered a great loss today. The entire entertainment world has. I am too sad about the news to say more than this. Matthew Perry was a sweetheart who deserved more peace in this life. 54 is too young to go. We love you, Matty. 
She called him Maddie as he introduced himself to you when you played hockey together. So let's pick up the story. I, I want you to remind me, and I can't believe I don't remember this, but I really don't remember this. 30 plus years ago, you and I and our dad and one of his best friends, Dave Martin, all met at your house in Los Angeles because we were all going to go to the Super Bowl there. And was Matthew Perry there as well? So you may recall that I dragged you out to my beer league hockey game and you watched me, I think, get thrown off the ice for arguing with the referee. That's right. I do remember that. Yes. And so after the games, we would always go to the same bar around the corner and the whole team. And, you know, Matthew was the first guy I ever played hockey with that didn't order a beer after hockey. It was always a double vodka. And it's sort of a telltale thing. And I can very specifically remember following him to the bar a couple of times when he went to order his second one and telling the bartender, no, sir, give him a soda water. He's driving home. And he would happily not argue with me and take his soda water and get home safe. So he had a, a very good heart. But this particular night, we went to the bar and it was very full. And I just said to, you know, our dad and his friend were there. And I just said to everybody, would you be more comfortable coming back to the house? And we'll just have a drink there. And everybody said yes. And and Matthew was standing there. He goes, mind if I tag along? And I said, no, come on over. And we sat and watched whatever sporting event was on TV on Super Bowl weekend on a Friday night. All together in our living room. And I was there. And you were there. I have no memory of this at all. I don't. So I was there with Matthew Perry in your home watching sports and having beverages. Now, you have to remember, this was before Matthew Perry was Matthew Perry that everybody knows and loves now. Right. Uh, there was only a few of us that knew and loved him. And on that note, um, I'll rem- remind you, our cousin Jonathan Holliff used to work for CBC and work on the NHL Awards show. And back before it became a glitzy Vegas-style show, it was done in Toronto, and they would hand out all the NHL awards just after the Stanley Cup was awarded in June. And I called him from Los Angeles. I said, look, Jonathan, you have all these celebrity uh, presenters who are typically Canadian or tied to hockey. I'm playing hockey with Matthew Perry. He goes, oh, I know he is, the boyfriend on, uh, you know, Mallory's boyfriend. Because friends hadn't happened yet. Friends hadn't happened. So I said, Jonathan, you know, book him. Get him to be on the show. It'll be good for his profile. He's my buddy, this and that. So eventually it happened, and Matthew was uh, flown to Toronto to be part of this show, and he was allowed to bring a plus one. And he had just gone through a rough time with his girlfriend, who we were all crazy about. And one night at hockey, he just said, would you like to be my plus one coming home to Toronto? Be like a homecoming for you. We came up together. We stayed in the brand new Skydome Hotel, same room. We went to all the events together. And he presented an NHL award um, to whoever he presented to. Fast forward two years later, Friends is out. I no longer live in California, but still have all my friends back there. Jonathan is still doing this show. And he calls me, says, look, I've reached out to Matthew Perry, his agent, everybody I know, and they're not returning my call. And like, he's got to be one of our presenters. He's Chandler on friends. So this is before people texted each other. 
So I called him, and <laughs> he, he answered, and I said, Matthew, you owe him. He goes, yeah, you're right. And he came up and he did the show. Oh, for goodness sakes. That's the kind of guy he was. Isn't that terrific? Now, I do recall they needed some extras to do some skating scenes for the NHL Awards, and and you got booked to do it, and I think you roped me into it, and we did it together. Do I remember that correctly? That was, yes, and we were we were sort of invisible on the face, but in the background skating, doing stuff, and it was... Uh, Good thing that they didn't zoom into our skating skill or that would never would have been sold as <laughs> NHL worthy. Right. But that was not the Matthew Perry year. That was a different year? Correct. Okay. I got that straight. Okay. Wow. Isn't that cool? So all these, all these big shots tried to get Matthew Perry to come on and do the NHL awards and they couldn't do it. But you called him, you told him he had to do it and he came back to Toronto and he did it. So I, I didn't tell him he had to do it, but I reminded him of the, the favor that was done for him by the same fellow who is now asking for a favor back. And I really didn't have to ask him. He got it and he said, you're right. I'll be there. Tell him to call me back. You know, da, 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 da. So he, he did the very right thing. Isn't that wonderful? Okay, let me get one more story out of you. And that is, uh, you and I uh, went to a school in Hamilton where the uh, principal was a guy named Barry Wansborough. And one of his kids, his daughter Connie, is somebody you and I grew up with and we know very well and are still in touch with. Uh, is there a Connie Wansborough, Matthew Perry story here? Yeah, this is, the, you know, how small is the world. So Barry Wansborough called me to say his daughter Connie is going to school in Pasadena and she's flying in on a particular night could I pick her up and help her get settled? Uh, she's moving across the country. I said, of course I could. And went to the airport, picked her up, brought her home. She's unpacking her stuff into our guest room. And the phone rings, and it's Matthew. And he says, uh, what are you doing? I said, I just got a friend from Canada visiting. Uh, what's up? Oh, the Kings are playing the Flames in a playoff game. We're getting pizza. I got a couple guys come out over. Do you want to join us? And I said, sure. Can I bring my friend from Canada? He goes, of course. So go driving over to his house and ordering the pizza and Connie and Matthew were sitting side by side on the couch and they just started talking. Where are you from? What do you do? So it turns out that Matthew says, well, you know, my parents are divorced. My mother is now married to Keith Morrison and they live in a semi-detached house in Toronto, but he didn't say the name Keith Morrison. She's remarried. Da, 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 da. Connie said, that's funny. My parents are divorced. My mother has remarried uh, to a judge from Hamilton. They've moved to Toronto. They live in a semi-detached house in Toronto. And it turns out, then Matthew says, well, my mother remarried Keith Morrison. And Connie says, well, my mother lives on the other side of the wall from your mother <laughs> in the exact same semi-detached house. You um, just couldn't script that if you tried. And then, you know, down the rabbit hole they went. And that was a very, you know, if you, if you, everybody watch Friends, so I won't say if you watch Friends. He was Chandler Bing. I mean, it, it's 25% further for the, the entertainment value, but he was a happy, funny, nicest guy in the room, best guy to be hanging around with. And the two of them went down this conversation about, you know, how their lives have now intertwined sitting beside each other on a couch while their their mothers are sitting on couches one wall apart at the exact same moment. It was really bizarre. Isn't that crazy? What a great story. Let me ask you one last question. When you heard the news of his death, and you now are in a position to sort of remember the Matthew Perry that you have known for 30-plus years, 
How are you remembering him today? Well, I I, I will tell you, uh, I, very sad. I get sort of choked up when I heard the news because he brought so much joy to people around him. And I don't mean people that watched him on television. He's just a good guy. He was a great guy to hang out with. He was a lot of fun. He was very generous. He was generous with his spirit. And the last time I saw him, uh, by you know, again, we had no cell phones when we knew each other. So once he moved and changed his landline, I had no way to connect with him. I happened to be at an Anaheim Ducks playoff game, and this is probably in 2000. And we're, I was walking around the concourse before the game, and I could see him walking with two people, you know, sort of... 15 yards ahead of me. So I sped up and didn't call his name, didn't say anything, just got uncomfortably close walking beside him on the concourse. And you could see he was kind of edging to get further away from me because I was uncomfortably close. Finally, he turns his head as if to say, like, why are you walking so close to me? And his eyes brighten up. And I hadn't seen him in six years. And he says, Pekin! And he gives me a big hug. And, and you know, when I read the book and I realize what was going on in his life at that time, his still his natural instinct was to share happiness and joy with somebody. And it's just a real loss. Um, you know, you read the tweets about the professional loss, uh, certainly a loss for the, the, the world to not have his entertainment anymore. But at a very personal level, we just lost a really nice man and a good guy. That's beautifully put. I want to express my sympathy to you for the loss of your friend and express also my gratitude to you for coming onto the radio this morning and telling your big brother and the audience listening all about your relationship. Thanks a lot, Jeff. It was a pleasure. Thanks for letting me do this. That's Jeff Pakin, my baby brother, who had a relationship, had a friendship with Matthew Perry uh, going back uh, 30 plus years when they both lived in Los Angeles, California. We lost uh, Matthew Perry, but we have the memories. And we will always have friends to watch. And he was also, of course, in the movies and Saturday Night Live. Just a really, just came across as so likable. And that's what was so entertaining and informative to listen to the brothers Pakin, Steve and Jeff. And you can hear the full interview with, uh, well, the conversation, let's call it that, with Steve and Jeff at globalnews.ca slash Roy Green shortly after this program ends, globalnews.ca slash Roy Green. And as I said, I heard that conversation, I heard the story on a golf course with Jeff. And Jeff and I had this terrible habit of hitting slices <laughs> off the tee. We both played left-handed and we'd end up somewhere together. And we'd always share stories on the way back to, to the fairway, however long that took. Anyhow, it was a difficult moment for all of us to know that Matthew Perry died at 54 much beloved actor, Saturday Night Live host. Uh, Bill Briou, Briou.tv, the podcast, senior member of the Television Critics Association of North America. Bill joins us on the Roy Green Show. Bill, thank you so much. Um, the popularity of Matthew Perry. Let me just tell you this. I was listening to a U.S. sports radio show this morning, 4 o'clock in the morning. And I expected to hear all about the World Series and NFL games coming up. And they were talking about Matthew Perry. And call after call after call 
was about Matthew Perry. And the host just carried it. The host just was so into it. It stopped being a sports show. It became a, we miss this guy. We love this guy. He made such a difference in our lives. The, the television show was so important to us. It was fascinating listening. And uh, I just like your perspective. Before you tell us about the first time that you met Mr. Perry, what was your perspective on Friends? Well, hi, Roy, and uh, thank hi. you for, for having me on to talk about Matthew Perry. Um, I, um, yeah, my perspective uh, with Perry was that he was very talented, you know, right from the start. He was sort of the uh, reliever of the series. You know, they'd bring him in to uh, get the out. He would always... He had a great knack for timing. Uh, he was a natural. He was sort of like Michael J. Fox in that way. And uh, so, uh, you know, he fit in. I wasn't the biggest fan of Friends, but I understand why those sportscasters, the folks who were listening to, reacted that way. Um, I remember talking to Bill Carter, who covered TV for the New York Times a few years ago. We live in an age when so many celebrities are dying. And he said, well, just wait till one of the Friends dies. Uh, because that's going to hit home and cross boundaries with several generations. And it's true. People who were not even born when Friends began in 1994 are are very sad today. They really bonded with that show, with that cast, and um, they're sad to hear he's gone. Yeah, I mean, I grew up with All in the Family, and by the time that was on the air, I was in my 20s, but... But uh, but I, I liked Friends, and I would watch it, and I knew it was clever, and I enjoyed it. Whenever I watched it, I enjoyed it, and Matthew Perry did stand out with, as you say, his timing. He was like the closer. Yeah, as you said, he, he brought they brought him in to uh, to end the, the, the show and to, and to strike out the side. You also interviewed Matthew Perry, but it was just days before the first episode. Share that with us, please. Yeah, I did, and I did it at Global, right, uh, with Bob McDory, who was a wonderful uh, guy who uh, a lot of us fondly recall, and he had an a show called Entertainment Desk. He'd have me on on Fridays. I was working at TV Guide at the time, and I would talk about what's coming up this week on TV. Perry was there, and uh, Friends was a show that was coming to Global, and Bob, instead of bumping me, he had me interview Matthew on air, and that was very nice of him, but um, I just remember that this uh, young kid who was 24 uh, and, and had some idea that he was on this rocket that was about to take off, uh, but he was very witty and uh, gracious, and uh, when I interviewed him over the years, subsequently, he, he always was a wonderful uh, person to encounter and talk to. There were the, the youth of uh, Matthew Perry when he became such a well instant success, as the series became instantly successful. His his age was also remarkable. Here's a 24 year old guy, and he basically becomes a television superstar overnight. Yeah. Hard hard to do. Well, yeah, and um, you know he had been a tennis brat. He was ranked in Canada when he was 15. Uh, playing competitive tennis, uh, you know, and his mom, uh, you know, they lived in Ottawa. They, he grew up with Justin Trudeau at, at school. You know, his mom worked for Pierre Trudeau, the prime minister at the time. Uh, his stepdad, Keith Morrison, and his actual father was the old spice man in commercials. So he was, wasn't a stranger to fame. 
Uh, you know, I think, and that probably helped. And he'd been on four flops before he got to friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so he was a bit of a showbiz vet, even though he was only 24. So you have the successful series, the ultra successful series, friends. Uh, it, it's hard to uh, to come back from that kind of success. And we've seen it with with many actors. They uh, they're tremendously successful in one series, and then they disappear for a while, sometimes quite a while. And then they bring them back, hoping there's going to be some magic leftover, some magic dust. And I think they're trying that with Fraser now. Um, and that may or may not work. Uh, I, I'm not sure it will. Because I'm not. Sh- I'm such a huge Fraser fan. I'm not sure I want Me to see. Too. I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure I want to see it again. I've seen the promos and I didn't like them particularly. But what was it about Matthew Perry? Do you think that allowed him to transcend that transition? Because he did Saturday Night Live and he made movies and he was very successful at it. Why? Why do you think that was? Well, it just Friends was such a monster juggernaut. It just drove everything and. Uh, he could only be a hit on uh, Saturday Night Live. It, it just ate him up. But, uh, you know, he struggled afterwards. He, like a lot of TV stars who have a big hit, he kept looking for the next one. He did Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. He did three or four other shows. He played a sports radio guy, like a, a Jim Rome kind of character. These shows came and went, and he was always searching for that next Friends. And it's kind of ironic because I think it, the next Friends was Friends. Like, it's it's a bigger show now. Uh, you know, it streams. It's a real sought-after prize in terms of streaming networks. And, uh, you know, and, and the other half of this, of course, is the fame, the, 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 the harder edge was that, you know, he, I guess, had an addictive personality. He struggled with uh, uh, abuse, and um, it took a huge toll on him. Over those years, he, he wrote in his memoir, he spent more time in uh, recovery than, you know, about half his life as an adult. So it was it was tough for him, many reasons, to find that next hit. Yeah, he was he was very open about that in his in his memoir about yeah. his life. And I think that also added to the likability factor. But he did Saturday Night Live. He was very successful there. He was younger than uh, many of his co-stars on SNL. And uh, so how how are we going to remember uh, Matthew Perry? How do you think his legacy in, in film and television or television and film is going to be? Yeah, he, he was the youngest member of that cast of Friends. Um, I, I think there's a legacy of laughter that people will, uh, that show is going to continue to resonate with, with people. And uh, you, it's easy to admire him on there. He's very good. Um, and I think part of his legacy is uh, more cautionary. It's just that even sometimes it seems as if he did find some sobriety finally, but I think his body, he just took a, quite a toll on him physically. And however he died, we hear he's drowned at home. Um, mm-hmm. He had other health issues. So I think that's part of the legacy is a, a more of a warning uh, that, you know, pe- people have limits and um, no matter how famous you are, when your time's up, your time's up. Yeah. Big Ottawa Saturdays fan. Big sports fan, right? Yeah, he was. Yeah, no kidding. There's a great clip on YouTube of him at a Senators game. Big Jays fan. His license plate, when I interviewed him, when he was on Friends, was back at home on his Porsche in California, 092 Blue Jays. (laughs) That's what... Jeff Bacon was talking about that. He wanted that plate, and and Matthew Perry went to the license office 
at 8.30 in the morning to line up so he could get it. <laughs> Jeff couldn't get it. He had to get Blue Jays. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. No, he, yeah. he loved hockey. He loved sports and uh, loved to talk about it. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.